The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Thanks, Pete. It is a privilege to be here. Thanks for welcoming me. Um, yeah, thanks. As a native Texan, also thank you for caring about people in Houston. I'm not from Houston. I'm from north of there. Uh, but I sent a lot, of a lot of students down to Houston after they graduate. Brittany and I are starting our sixth year in campus ministry, um, so our first year here. Like Pete said, we moved here about four weeks ago, um, and so we have launched a lot of Texas students back into the Houston area, and so thank you for caring for them, um, for a lot of people. We've worked in the past with the PCA's uh, Disaster Response. It's a great organization. Um, at some point, they will be inviting volunteers to come down. And if you want to get your hands um, dirty and building sheds, um, and also actually talking to the people you're building sheds with, that's a great ministry that I've taken students on a couple of different trips to disaster areas. Um, so that's a great opportunity in ministry. Um, so yes, thanks. Also, um, I would love to meet you, especially if you're a U of A alum or you had a child that went to the U of A. I want to hear your story. Um, even if you weren't a Christian, it's good to hear stories of how God met you on campus or how God was at work in your life before you were a Christian on campus. Um, if you happened to be in the RUF when it existed previously, it died about seven, eight years ago. If you were in that RUF, I'd love to meet you as well. Um, I'd love to add you to our monthly email list so you can see how God is at work, um, even as we start from scratch, even as we have zero students right now and are, I'm just meeting, trying to meet as many students as possible to form a group. I would love for you to participate in praying um, with us that God would work. Um, if you're interested in helping out in other ways um, by meeting students, by hosting students, by financially giving, we need all those partners as well. So talk to me and I would love to tell you more about that and about our needs. So again, thanks for having me here this morning. Um, so whether you're a visitor like I am or whether you have been here for, since the beginning, six years ago, six years ago, five years ago, six years ago, whether you have come as a single person, as a married family, um, as a divorced person, we're all in relationship with each other. But it doesn't take long to realize that our relationships are broken. Even some of our best relationships have brokenness in them that breaks our hearts. I think Jesus is speaking to that this morning in, he can speak to that this morning in John 17. In John 17, Jesus is spending his last hours with his disciples before he is arrested and put on false charges for a trial and crucified. So what he is doing is very important for them, and he chooses actually to pray for them. But not just to pray for them, but to pray for us who would believe through them. So this morning we're looking at John 17 verses 20 through 26, and it's in your Bible. I, this is my first time here, so will it be up there? No, it's in Bibles. It's in your Bible. So that's towards the end of the Bible. <clears throat> it's the last of the Gospels. This is from John 17, verse 20 through 26. Jesus is praying. He says, I do not ask that these, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that they, would be, may, 
that they, the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I also give them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me and made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Will you pray with me? Father, you have united us to Jesus through your Holy Spirit. You have placed your Spirit inside of Christians to help us to know your love, to help us to feel your presence, but also to speak to us. The same Spirit that inspired the words of the Bible to be written, the same Spirit that anointed Jesus at his baptism, the same Spirit that has been in eternal fellowship with you and the Son for all eternity dwells in Christians and speaks to us. So we ask that he would be our teacher and our guide this morning as we look at Jesus' words. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> so I'm getting, I think, over allergies or something, so my voice is all gravelly. I'm extra thirsty. When I was in high school, I grew up in northeast Texas in a town called Longview, Texas. I was privileged to be able to play soccer. I don't look like that now because I'm bald-headed and a little bit pudgy. I don't look like this strapping young soccer player. But I was short then as well, so I don't know what the coach was thinking to put me on the field. But I played soccer. Playing team sports is great because one of the benefits of being on a team is the joy that comes at certain moments of belonging together. Now, you've got to realize that in northeast Texas where I grew up, soccer, for some reason, is played in January. It started in January. No, I know why, because football is massive, and um, so they punt soccer to the coldest months of the year. So as soccer seasons are starting, there's often pouring down rain and 33-degree weather. We don't get that here very often, not the rain and the cold at the same time. But sometimes fields would be icy and three inches of water. Now, there's this one game that I remember from my junior year. My friend and teammate, Matt, was close to breaking the school record for the most goals for an individual in a season. Now, to you, that doesn't mean much. But to us, we were so excited because our comrade, our teammate, was going to break this longstanding school record. Excitement built the closer he got. And I remember this game where he broke the record, and I really actually don't remember much about the game except for the field had about three inches of water. It was like we were swimming, and it was 33 degrees, and there was ice on the sides of the field, and we were out there in shorts and long sleeve t shirts. And I also remember as he got closer to scoring, I don't remember who was on the field, I just remember him scoring. He was left-footed, and I remember he went up, he shot the ball, and it went past the goalkeeper's fingertips. And the moment that the net moved, we knew that he had scored. He turned around and started sprinting back to the middle of the field on our sideline, 
and his, he got about 20 yards away. He dove like he's diving into home plate, and then he glided for about 20 yards because of all the water. And as he's gliding, the rest of us are sprinting together as well, those of us on the field, and we're diving in, and it looks like the synchronized swimming pinwheel. And then we're all dogpiling on top of him, all this laughter, all this joy, probably some tears for all these testosterone-filled um, 17 and 18-year-olds. We were celebrating Matt. The game wasn't even over, but we were celebrating the glory that he had with us on the field. There's this sense of unity, this sense of belonging. And Matt's glory was really all of our glory because we belonged to each other. So we celebrated together. I don't know what it's been for you, but for most of us, there is some small moments in life like that. Maybe for you, it was in theater in middle school or high school or college. When the cast and the crew clicked, the lights came on at the right time. The sound came at the right time. Lines were hit on time. Props got put out in time. Maybe it was in some music team where all the instruments seemed to blend together. The voices blended together. Maybe it was in band at the U of A or the Pride of Arizona, and it just clicked one game and you felt great. Maybe it's been in brief moments of unity in your marriage where you feel like, man, this is really how it's supposed to be. I hope this lasts into next week. (laughs) Maybe it was in the military in your platoon or your battalion, when you really clicked, especially in a combat zone. Maybe it's been at work on a team in a presentation, and you feel like, man, we nailed that. And you go to celebrate afterwards because you belong to each other to produce a good product. Maybe it was on a mission trip where everyone clicks, everyone working so well together that you don't even want to leave the trip because you feel like this is a taste of heaven right here. These little glimmers, I think, are glimpses into our hearts. God has made us to deeply long to belong. And those moments help us to realize that we long to belong. We long for unity and community. But it doesn't take us very long to realize that this deep longing bumps up against reality. The reality of brokenness and disunity. There's disunity all around. It's not hard in a polarized nation, a polarized society to really see that. Democrats versus Republicans, Donald Trump versus all of his detractors, talking heads on news stations, your drunk uncle at the table during a family gathering criticizing everybody, including the people at the table, your family at Thanksgiving when it feels like, why do we get together every year? We're just so so not unified your own divorce, your kids between, you as a kid bouncing between your divorced parents' homes, a conflict with your roommates, a conflict with your spouse, a conflict with your parents, a conflict with church mates. We long to belong, but we experience the harsh reality of broken relationships. We want community, but often the experience of our relationships feels like everything is broken. We have this deep, confusing tension of the way we feel like things should be, but the way that things are not. This morning, I want for us to look at this passage as this longing to belong, this hope for unity in relationships. 
In John 17, Jesus is spending his final moments with his disciples praying for them and really praying for us because we're the people that will believe through them. So I want for us to consider this morning the assumptions that Jesus has of what is true, even as he prays. He's not just praying for things. He's assuming things are already true. And then we're going to look at the implications of those assumptions for our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. So first, we're going to start with the assumptions in Jesus' prayer. Jesus' disciples are united to him. That's what his assumption is. He's praying that his disciples might be one with him just as he is one with the Father. For me, those statements are easy to blast past as I'm reading the Gospel of John. If you're like me, you kind of have like, oh, yeah, Jesus wants to be, to be one together. We're going to be like Kermit the Frog as we're singing about rainbows, as we're building the theater for the Muppets. You feel like, oh, okay, yeah, Jesus wants us to be like that. We blast past this deep reality that Jesus actually wants us to realize that we're one with the Father and we're already one with each other. We don't actually have to work for it. So I want us to look real briefly at what does it mean that God the Father and God the Son are one? And what does it mean that Jesus and his disciples are one? So what does it mean that God the Father and God the Son are one? God is a community of unity. He's simultaneously Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three different persons are God. Not different gods, one God, equal in power and glory, but different. But together, the Father, Son, and Spirit make a relational community. What unites them is more than them all just being God. It's their mutual love together, that they've been in this eternal relationship of love. Eternal, not, not just from the before, or not just the, from the beginning of creation, but all of eternity, they've been in this relationship of love. Look what Jesus says at the ends of verses 23, at the end of verse 24, and the end of verse 25. He says, you have loved me. He says, you have loved me from before the foundation of the world. You've loved me. Then in bef before this chapter in John 15, Jesus speaks of abiding in his Father's love. In John 14, he speaks of loving his Father. Jesus and the Father, and really the Holy Spirit for that matter, are one. They're equally God because they share a mutual life-giving love for one another. When one receives glory, they all receive mutual glory because of their love for one another. Like my soccer team in high school, we had this unified relationship as a team, pursuing the team's glory through victory. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are unified in a relationship as a team, bringing glory through the victory of their love as they spread that out into the world, winning sinners to themselves, to himself forgiving and cleansing and uniting sinners to God by making himself and his love known to them and making his glory and his name and reputation known through them to the world. The Father, Son, and Spirit in a unified relationship of love. So what does it mean that Jesus and his disciples are one? In these short verses, Jesus says several times that I might be in them, then he says, they might be in us. He says those kind of over and over. So what does Jesus mean by this? 
when Jesus is saying that he that his mission of coming to earth, of dying, rising, ascending, and sending his spirit, what he's saying is that his this was all to unite himself to his disciples. We're in him like a team captain represents a team. He's in us through the mystery of the Holy Spirit residing in us if we're Christians. Now, I want to admit that that is a mystery that from right after Jesus spoke these words until now, Christians and pastors and theologians have wrestled with how to articulate this to help us understand. The scriptures give us a couple of brief images to help us to begin to wrap our heads around it a little bit. One is that our union with Christ is like a union between vines and branches. That the branches can't exist without the vine. That there's this unity. That the branches are nourished by the vine. Our union with Christ is like the union between a husband and a wife when it's working ideally. In Ephesians, Paul talks about Jesus' disciples' relationship with Jesus like that. They become one in love. And ideally, the husband's good becomes the wife's good. And the wife's good becomes the husband's good and their whole lives are united around blessing each other. Now, for some of us, I realize that that's a hard picture. But when it is working well, that's the picture. That's a good picture of the gospel, of us being united to Christ. Our union with Christ is like a body's union with its head. A body can't have life without a head. No matter what haunted le- legends you listen to, like Ichabod Crane, a body can't exist without a head. We need the head to live. We also need it to function and know how to work together. Our union with Christ is like a building's union with its foundation. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, writes in this letter at the end about the relationship with Jesus that his disciples have, of this living building being built on a living foundation. Without the foundation, the building will crumble. As the foundation goes, the building goes. As I would grow up, at night in my house in East Texas. I would lay in my bed and watch up to the ceiling at night, and I would watch over the years this crack grow. And even when I went off to college, and I'd come back home for a visit, I would see that the crack was a little bit further. For those of you who have owned a home where foundations shift, you know that it's because the foundation is cracking that there's a crack in the ceiling. But since Jesus is sound and perfect, the building being built on him might bend and it might err and be broken because of sin, but it's never going to break because of the foundation, because the foundation is solid. He will hold it together. What Jesus is saying in this passage is that he desires that his disciples realize that they have been united to him, that they share in his love, that they need his love to live, that they belong to God that you, that I, belong to God. If you're a Christian, your union with Christ is the foundation for your relationship with God. I would say also with other Christians. And for that matter, I would say for everybody else. Your union with Christ, your belonging to God, is your foundation for all those other relationships. So we're going to look at your relationship with God, my relationship with God, and then our relationship with each other, our relationship with God. Understanding that you are united with Christ should deeply impact your relationship with God. So what does that mean? Each of us, you and I, were made for relationship with God. 
Now, for those of us who's grown up in the church, we're like, oh, yeah, I get that. But let me jog our memories to think about it for a minute. God created the world as a beautiful place. We rehearse this every week in the liturgy in this church with the part of creation, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. God created the world as a beautiful place. Then God created human beings in his image. He placed them as his co-rulers to represent his rule in the world and take his, the rule of his glory into the world. Humans are called to make the world to grow and to flourish. He placed the first human beings in a garden and he told them to spread Eden out to the ends of the earth as his image bearers. He daily spent time with them. Human beings were created to daily spend tangible, daily, regular time with their creator. But, like the liturgy says, the first human beings rebelled against God and didn't believe that he loved them, that he would give them what they needed, that he would give them good things. And in their rebellion, they broke their relationship with God, and they broke all of our relationships with God as well, for everybody after them. We're born into a broken relationship with God. The Bible says that we're born enemies, filled with pride and rebellion in our hearts. But while we were still enemies, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit made a rescue plan to send the Son into the earth to reconcile rebellious children to himself. What was broken is now restored. So why does this matter? Because you are made for relationship with God. You actually long for relationship with someone greater than you, who knows you and who loves you. As a side note, I think that this is part of the reason that so many of us want to know famous and powerful people, like celebrities or politicians or talk show hosts or professional athletes or people like Coach Miller. We long to be known by them and loved by them. God made that longing for belonging inside of you. And Christ came to make this relationship a reality by uniting you to himself. You belong to God. So what does that mean for you? The unity of love that Jesus has with God the Father, you have with the Father. Jesus says in verse 26, look at verse 26. He says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What Jesus is saying is that God, the creator and sustainer of everything that exists, loves you with the same love that he loves Jesus. Wait, what? Surely God the Father loves Jesus more than he loves me, right? Because he's been in this eternal relationship with Jesus. Surely he loves Jesus more than me. But look what it says again in verse 26. I'm going to read it again. He says, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. God the Father loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. And Jesus wants it to be that way. God the Father loves you as much as he loves Jesus, his son. You got to see my children up here, Jonah and Penny, and got to see them escorted out. We have two kids, Brittany and I do, and I love them more than I can probably explain or articulate. Now, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and so I love you as well, but if you asked me, if you came up to me after the service and asked me if 
I loved you as much as I loved my children? One, that'd be really awkward because you would already know the answer. And two, the answer would be no. Because they're my children and I love them. But God the Son, who has been in a love-filled relationship with God the Father for all of eternity, from before the foundations of the earth, is what this passage says. Praise to the Father for the Father to help you know that the Father loves you like he loves the Son. Do you really believe this? My guess is if you're like me, you probably don't. Can you believe this? That God actually loves you no matter what you yelled this morning getting ready for church? No matter what you let your eyes, your mind wander to this past week or last night? No matter what a bully has said to you or what you have said bullying somebody else with your words? No matter what someone has done to you or your body or what you have done to your own body? No matter what guilt you carry, what shame you carry? No matter what you think about yourself or your looks or your abilities or your moral strength? No matter what you do not read from the Bible, no matter the fact that you haven't prayed in three weeks because you are down in the dumps. You are united to God by his love. One pastor in L.A. put it this way, that union with Christ assures us there is no depth to which humanity can go that God's love cannot reach them. There's no depth that you can go that God's love cannot reach you. So what can you do about growing in this belief? I think we can join with Jesus in praying that. Praying with Jesus that God the Father would help you know more deeply that he loves you as much as he loves Jesus, who is also God. I think you can also meditate it on it or chew over it in your mind. I would encourage you to do a word search maybe on your phone, on a Bible, on a Bible on the internet, and look for every time in the New Testament that it says, in Christ or in Him. And then begin to write those things down, or at least some of them. Every time a New Testament writer writes the phrase, in Christ, and talks about what you have in Christ, he's talking about the ways that God loves you. You have forgiveness in Christ. He's making you new in Christ. He's working all things together for your good in Christ. I would encourage you, maybe this is cheesy, but write it on a sticky note and apply it to yourself. Put it in on your mirror. Put it in the diaper bag where the diapers, where you get the diapers out. Put it in your pocket. Put it in your wallet. And then write it in such a way that it applies to you even in your worst moments. In Christ, I am a new creation, no matter how much of my old sinful self showed up today. In Christ, I am forgiven of the awful thoughts I thought today about the people I'm supposed to love. In Christ, no matter how much I lost my temper with my children, I am, no, I am loved and belong to God. We sin, and that is heartbreaking and devastating, and it breaks the Father's heart. But it does not change God's love for you. He loves you as much as he loves Jesus. If you're not Christian here this morning, I would still invite you to ask God to help you believe it. Or I'd challenge you to look into the Christian Bible, into the New Testament, maybe from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which is towards the end of the Bible. And begin to ask, if this is true, what is God saying about how he loves me? Read the Gospel of John and listen to Jesus' words and 
if this is actually true, what is he saying about God's love for me? And begin to read that and wrestle with that. Because your soul will not rest until you find your belonging in him. Jesus is praying and acknowledging that we're united to him. And that should transform our relationship with God, but it should also transform our relationships with each other. He says that Jesus says his disciples are united in relationship to each other. Look what Jesus prays, starting in verse 21. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Then over in 22, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. That's a lot of oneness in this short little passage. Perfectly one. One like the Father and the Son are one. Imagine if you had that level of unity with people, with your spouse, with your children, with your workmates, with your churchmates, with the people that you're supposed to be close with. Imagine if you'd had that level of unity. Imagine if the people of Holy Cross Tucson had that level of unity and took that unity into greater Tucson, into our sub-communities. What would that look like? Let's look at two ways this passage is true. The first way is that we're united to each other and we share the love of God together. Jesus prays that his disciples would be one, perfectly one, not just with him, but with each other. He prays that we might know the love of God together, not just individually, but together. We belong to God and belong to each other through God's love. Because God the Father loves you like he loves Jesus, and he loves the person sitting next to you and three rows behind you and four rows up from you, like he loves Jesus, you were united together. The unifying factor is God's love. Now, what do we often unify around? College football just started. That's a good example. Often, especially in the part of the country that I come from, people unify around college football. Here, we unify it around college basketball. That we are one because we're cheering for the Wildcats together. But if it's not sports for you, then it's other things like your career, like politics, like the same denomination, like the same church that we started together six years ago. We unify together. For me, I'm trying to do that with students on campus. Hey, start this together with me. The church plant down in Midtown, we're trying to think, start this together. We often unify around things that we do together. But what Jesus is saying is that you have unity in reality that each of you are loved in the same way that the Father loves the Son. You share that with the people in your life who are Christians. The second way that we're united to each other is that we share the glory of God to the world. Jesus also says that by being united together, that we share in God's glory to the world through us. Look at verses 24 and 26, through 26. He says, The Father, I, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known 
that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus speaks of Christians sharing God's glory and Jesus speaks of making the Father's name known to the world through them, to the world that doesn't know him. This unity that is bound in God's love, he's going to make that known and make himself known to the world through them. The ancient Roman world into which Jesus' disciples spread after his resurrection was not an easy place to live. Famine, disaster. There was a decent amount of infrastructure for the day, but, I mean, Harvey is helping us to see that in a world that doesn't have technology, disaster can be horrific. But it wasn't just natural disaster. There was this caste system that had clear glass ceilings that you couldn't break past based on your class. You couldn't level up. But Christianity spread because Christians cared for and loved each other as well as outsiders discarded by the Roman society. They cared for the elderly, the abandoned. They cared for women who were often seen as the lowest place in society. They cared for the poor, the sick, those with no food. They were so affected at caring for people in need in the cities in which they lived that the Romans began to take note. One of the Roman emperors who was really, one of his life missions was to bring about the glory of the pagan gods of Rome was named Julian. And Julian has this letter that's a historical letter that he is writing to one of his priests of pagan Romanism in Galatia. And in this letter, he writes, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, the impious Galileans or the impious Christians observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. And then he continues later in the letter, the impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. This pagan emperor who was deeply anti-Christian took note because the love of Christians that they shared with each other overflowed to other people outside of the community in tangible ways. God's glory spread because Christians realized that they were united together in God's love and God's love overflowed towards other people. What would it look like if you began to see other Christians as united to God in his love and therefore united to you in a real way? How would it change the way you view your relationships? Would you be more patient with your Christian parents when they just don't seem to understand you? Would you be more forgiving of your Christian friends when they hurt you? Would you be more forgiving of the Christians who are definitely not your friends because they've hurt you? Would you be more compassionate with Christians struggling with their sins or with their doubts? Would your view of your spouse change? If you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, would the, view, the way you view her body or his body change if you understood them to be united to Christ and therefore united to you? Would you be more brokenhearted when Christians in your community or in your city or in the world, are oppressed for things outside of their Christianity, like their race, like their social, like their economic class? 
or the fact that they're a single parent or someone who's divorced? How would it change how you view non-Christians, people who are longing to belong but are not quite convinced that Jesus is God? How would it change the way that you treated people who are often easily discarded by the subcultures of our society that we live in? The homeless, the divorced, the mentally ill, the addicted, the men and the women who can't seem to get their lives straightened out. How would that begin to affect your relationship with them? In what ways would and should God's love overflow to others in the context that God has placed you? In the classroom, at your workplace, in your family of origin or your extended family as a group of Christians called Holy Cross placed in this part of Tucson, placed in Tucson, in Arizona, close to the border. It's exciting to see that there's this at least stirring in you to reach out to the people in Texas, that God is already at work in you helping you to realize that you want this love to overflow to people in need. Who are the people God is providentially bringing into the context of your individual life, the life of this church? How can you practically care for them? I'm having to actively wrestle with that right now as I enter campus. Who's God providentially bringing into my life, even if they're not the cool people, even if they're not the popular people, the people that are most connected? How is God calling me to overflow in love to them? God's glory spreads when Christians realize that they are united together in God's love. And God's love overflows towards other people with practical needs, with whom God providentially brings into our midst. Actively look for how you as an individual or a cluster of people in your small group can care for people. Who do you see? What need do you see? What are ways that God has gifted you, given you the resources to provide, whether it's financial or time or a listening ear? What are ways that God is calling you to care for the people he brings in your life? If you're a Christian here this morning, you've been placed on a team. But it's not a team that you earn a spot on based on your skill or your effort. It's a team where you come when you realize that you long to belong, but you so often fail to love other people. You failed to love God. And that while the game was going on, you were trying your hardest to actually score for the other team. Not by accident, by by will. It's a game in which only one player fought for your team. A game in which God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit made a rescue plan for you to unite you and me as rebellious children to Him in love. So the Son left the loving relationship where He belonged to enter creation, to become a human like you, to unite you to Himself in love. He lived a perfect life, the life that you and I should have lived. He died a death in our place, feeling the separation from God the Father so that you and I wouldn't have to. He was laid dead in a tomb, but death could not hold him. And in the greatest victory dance and victory sprint to midfield of all times, with his hands raised high, he rose from the grave, declaring to God the Father that he had won, declaring to you and me that he had won for us. And that means that you win with him because you're united to him on his team. 
That's the team that you're on. That's the team captain who plays for you and who will win and who will see his glory and mission accomplished in the world. And he delights to use you for that. You as an individual, you as a community, that's your team. That's your community. That's your church. You belong to me, is what he says. You are my child. You are united to me and my love. Will you pray with me? Father, so often it is hard for us to believe this. Whether it's because of our own sin and our own shame and guilt for it, whether it's for our own shame for what somebody has done to us, whether it's from our own neglect because, man, life is so full and busy, whether it's because of other outside circumstances that we can't blame anybody for. It's so hard for us to believe these things. So we ask that you would help us to believe that the Holy Spirit that you have placed inside of us is the one that stirs belief in our hearts and in our minds. We pray that you would begin to reshape our imaginations, that you would begin to fill our hearts with affection by realizing that you love us, even when we don't deserve it, especially when we don't deserve it. Help us then to overflow that love to other people, but not before we completely realize and begin to realize that you love us not for our ability to overflow, but because we're your children. Pray that you would do that because you are filling the earth with your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.